Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device on planet Earth, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get 2666 by Roberto Bolaño, The Late Great, or How About Inherent Vice by Thomas Pynchon. Just about any book in Audible's library can be yours, free of charge, and if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few bucks. That's nice. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a great deal. It is available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is writerly in nature. This is a back and forth exchange. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. And hey, first, before I forget, the program, in case you're not aware, is available for subscription at iTunes and Stitcher, free of charge. So if you haven't done that yet, please do go subscribe to the show. It doesn't cost a thing. Otherwise, uh, I've been getting a lot of nice emails lately in the aftermath of episode 100. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much. And I figured I would read one here on the air. This is from an author and a listener named Ben. Dear Brad, he says, I had my first reading the other night with my mother and about 20 other people present. I opened up by riffing off your suggested song to listen to shortly before giving a reading to three people, one of whom is your mom. Not only did it kill, it helped me get past my nerves and put on a halfway decent performance. Thanks a million. And I, I, let, me, let me actually interject here in the middle of the letter. What Ben is referring to is a mixtape that I put together for Electric Literature, a fine purveyor of literature, and a, a terrific lit blog. And uh, I wrote a list of songs about the writing life. It was sort of tongue-in-cheek. I did it in advance of the 100th episode. It was meant to be funny. And song number seven on the list uh, is Thunderstruck by ACDC, which is the aforementioned song to listen to shortly before giving a reading to three people 
one of whom is your mom. So uh, if you can kind of imagine that, you're getting ready to give a reading. You're at a Barnes & Noble, perhaps. Uh, it is fluorescently lit. Three people are there, one of whom is your mom. You are pacing in some sort of random hallway before the performance. You are wearing, perhaps, some large uh, padded headphones, and you're listening to this song as you do this. You understand what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? Can you feel that? Anyway... Uh, if you want to read the rest of the list, you can track it down over at electricliterature.com. So uh, Ben's letter, back to Ben's letter, it continues. Uh, I've been downloading the show for about six months now. At first, I simply cherry-picked my favorite new authors, but a few weeks back, uh, I subscribed. Not only have I enjoyed your interviews with a few of my favorites, Lauren Groff, Adam Levin, Steve Almond. I've also discovered writers like Jess Walter along the way. How in the hell uh, have I overlooked him for so long? Uh, I love the open-ended format. Nothing wrong with listening to a guy like Levin ramble on about his parakeet for a half an hour. I'm not being sarcastic. Best of luck with the next 100 episodes. I'll be listening. Ben. So thank you, Ben. That's a great letter. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everybody uh, for writing in and for being so kind. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Dana Johnson. She is the author of Break Any Woman Down, Break Any Woman Down, a short story collection that won the Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction and was a finalist for the Hurston Wright Legacy Award. And her debut novel is now available from Counterpoint. It is called Elsewhere. California. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Dana Johnson. It is great to have her here on the program. Please enjoy. No, my first book was a short story collection called Breaking Woman Down, and that came out around 2001. Award winning. Yes, it won the Flannery O'Connor, which is cool. That's pretty cool. So, okay, tell me what that entails. Um, what, what entails? The Flannery O'Connor Award. <laughs> what, what does that mean? I just, um, you, you know, it's one call. of the, it's one of, you know, of course, one of the most prestigious literary, uh, awards for short stories. And so I was in grad school. I was at Indiana University. I'm from uh, Indiana. Oh, okay. So yeah, I was, uh, just getting my MFA and had sent my thesis out. Literally, I was so broke and the award cost something. It was like 25, 30 bucks to enter. And I had no money, but I had this thesis and I was going to get my feet wet and kind of, you know, start trying to get exposure for my book. So I entered the Flannery O'Connor, sold some CDs and some shoes or something. I don't know. I just get the money. And, (laughs) 
and I won. And I got a call from the editor who chose the books that year, Charles East. And he called me at my little apartment in Bloomington. And he said, uh, this is Charles East. He had a really sweet Southern accent. Of course it sounded sweet. (laughs) Really sweet. Anyone who's given you an award, it's going to sound sweet. He said, this is Charles East. And uh, I think you know why I'm calling. And I said, "Uh, no, I don't. And he said, well, you're one of the winners of the Flannery O'Connor this year. And he has this Georgia accent. And I said something like, shut up. Or no, this isn't. Who is this really? Is pretty great. Wow. That's awesome. And so yeah. then uh, let's talk about the publication process or the pre-publication process for your novel. You started working on that in the aftermath. Right. And, uh, you know, got the book done. Mm-hmm. Was it, what kind of process was that? Was it super arduous getting the novel done or was it something that you felt had been sort of brewing inside of you? Like they, they, they happen in different ways. Like right. I, I happen to be in the midst of one that's just like a complete grind. And then sometimes I think, um, yeah, I guess it's always a grind, but yeah, I think I some, sometimes that I feel like maybe I'm maybe I'm just remembering my first book uh, with nostalgia, but I feel like that one shot out of me faster. And that no, this I one... totally agree with you. Like the short story collection, I just I remember it being this sort of breezy, pleasant experience. <laughs> right. And then the novel was just like, why, yeah. why this is so hard? And I started it about ten years ago. Um, little chapters here and there, but I still didn't know what I was doing. And so it's taken me all these years to kind of focus and get the structure of the novel right and kind of what I wanted to talk about and focus. And so it was really hard. It was, and then once the book got accepted, uh, taken by counterpoint, it was the beginning of even more editing. I had a really good editor. He was tough. He did a lot of slash and burn scorched earth stuff on me with the novel And then I wrote a lot of new stuff as well. So it it seemed to go on for a while. It was a saga. Yeah. But and then in terms of getting it accepted, was the sales process difficult? It was. uh, I don't think people knew what it was I was trying to do. And so it got rejected roundly time and time again, all the big houses. Um, And... They said stuff like, well, like the dual dual narrative's not quite working, or we just don't quite see how uh, these sections are kind of informing each other. Or um, one editor said, I always laugh about this, that she wasn't pleased with the ebonics of the novel, because there's a whole thing that I'm doing about assimilation and voice, and so the voice changes the more assimilated my character gets in the dual narrative, so... Um, I'm just doing a lot of wacky stuff in the book. And so, you know, Counterpoint was the last place it landed, and I should have sent it to them first, because they completely understood what I was doing, and they appreciated it, and they love it, and um, so that's how... It only takes one. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like you just have to find that one person, uh, you know, and it has to have, it has to be a person who works at a publishing house. And <laughs> that would be helpful <laughs> and, and, as an that acquisitions editor. But, you know, like once you find that person and they get your work, it's a tremendous relief. Yeah, it's great. And then uh, everybody in your life who, you know, was sitting there waiting for you to, to go through the process was like, I knew it would happen. <laughs> yeah, they were saying that. And I was like, come on, like, don't tell me that. But then, of course, when it got taken, they said, of course, we knew. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, um Tell me a little bit about how you came to be uh, a writer like that. Like, how did this all happen for you? Like, is it something that you can trace back to your early childhood or was it something you came to later? 
Oh, I was always, it's, it's that same corny story. I was writing when I was nine, because um, I, I was like, writing little poems and things like that, and was a huge reader. Just, I was that kid that was, you know, at the dinner table with a book in her face when other people were trying to relate to each other and have conversations. So that was me, and I'd always wanted to write, and I just didn't know anybody in my life, in my world, who were writers. They didn't seem like real people, or they seemed like people of the past, and so it was something that I wanted to do, but I had no idea how to go about it or what you do, and meanwhile, though, I was just kind of writing down my little observations and things. and Keeping a diary? Kept a diary. I prefer to call it a journal, however. <laughs> Kept a journal. Do you still have it? I do. I have all those journals. And I stopped keeping journals when I started writing seriously in grad school, which is interesting. I couldn't seem to do both. No, I kind of felt the same way. I, yeah. and, I, and after a while, too, I just felt like my I was journaling when I was you know younger, and I was like, I'm just complaining. Yeah. And I called yeah. them my complaining books, like sort of as a joke after a while, because that was really all I was doing. Yeah. And just sort of like this person said this to me and, you know, I just thought I could be, it's so hard to sit down and write and I should be working on my fiction rather than, but I know lots of other friends who are writers who can do all that. They can do the blog and the journal and the this and the that. And I just can't do all that. I only, I only have so much like juice in yeah, a day and exactly. like once it's done, it's done and I've got to like move on. And I'm finding now, uh, you know, cause I have a young child, it's hard for me to read and lately uh, I've been getting, uh, I've been trying to get more disciplined about it. I think what I really should do is get up first thing in the morning and read for at least a half an hour, but I'm trying to read at night and I fall asleep immediately. Yeah. yeah. I just, it's, it's hard either way. Cause I'm not a morning person. I kind of just want to be staring off into space for a good 40 minutes when I first wake up. But again, a do lot you do of that. A kind of, yeah, <laughs> good I for do. you. Yeah, but I don't have children, so I can afford that kind of luxury. I think it's different when you have, you well, know, little people to take care of. So. Yeah, I mean, you can't, yeah, when they're young enough, you can kind of, you know, rock them and mm -hmm. stare off into space. You kind of have a luxury, but once they start talking and moving around, it's all over with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, they, they hop out of bed, you know. Yeah. My daughter's up. It's done. <laughs> Um, so how do you work? Like, what's your, what's your, uh, ritual? You know, if you get up and you have this 40 minute meditation <laughs> staring blankly right. off your balcony, I'm picturing you on a balcony with a cup of coffee. So. No, I live downtown. So I have one of those sort of, uh, Hitchcock rear window views of I'm looking into someone else's house right away from across the well. But, um, um, I, I usually, my process is I, I, I set aside some time, but it's not, um, uh, it could be any time of the day or night. So I don't have this regular, I'm waking up at six and I'm writing from six to eight. It's just kind of where I can fit it in, in between teaching, um, and everything else. And so if I have things in mind, for instance, the way I wrote the novel, I would just figure out, okay, this is how many hours in the day I have. I teach from this hour to this hour. So I need to at least get three hours in somewhere. So I just figure it out. And often I wrote outside. I, I'm one of those people who likes to hang out in coffee shops and kind of hear noise and arguments and people's dialogues and things like that. And so I got well, What coffee shop are you in? I'm curious. 
Well, it's can, no can, can, longer. Like, here's open. here's my actual question. Okay. Can you write in a Starbucks? No. Okay. Because no. I, I couldn't do that. I've never tried. I mean, I think I've probably written something in a Starbucks, but like. I could not like have that be my regular. If I were a cafe writer, I don't think that could be my mm-hmm. regular. It would have to be. I don't even want to buy my coffee in there, <laughs> right in there. But you it know, would seem like, it would seem to have a deadening effect. I mean, the coffee yeah, works. It's it's caffeinated. It's fine. It's fine. But it's uh, no, no. I like. There was this really great place. Um, I've lived downtown going on seven years now, and it was on the corner of Fifth and Main called Banquette. And it was one of those places where you could go in there at nine o'clock in the morning and stay till nine o'clock at night and no one would bother you. You were, it was just like my office and most of the novel got written there. And, um, and then my edits, cause that took a long time, six, eight months or something. That's, um, this place called coffee bar that's off the corner of spring and sixth, which is right around the corner from my house. And, and so you can just kind of sit there for hours and hours and hours. Okay. So here's a question, <laughs> and this is going to make me seem completely neurotic, but I have to ask it because I write from home. Um, it's going to get harder and harder as my you know daughter gets older, and especially if we have another kid, it'll just be chaos. So like I'm anticipating a day where I'm going to have to move out of the house to do creative work and mm-hmm. any any semblance of peace. And the problem that I have, or not a problem, but here's a question that I have because I try to imagine it. I, I, I'm able to close the door in here and sit down and put on headphones and focus and have a stretch of time. But I feel like if I went to a coffee shop and I'm in there and I'm drinking coffee, like what do you do when you have to pee? Do you leave your computer? <laughs> you just leave it there. Do you just leave your computer? Just and leave it. You don't care. And you don't, don't, you don't have to like keep packing things up. It feels, no. it feels logistically complicated to me. Or, you know, you like, hopefully you're sitting to, next to someone who looks halfway normal and you can say, Hey, do you mind keeping an eye right. on my stuff? And usually they do, but all these years, I've never had a mishap. Well, let's knock on wood here, No Dana. one's exactly <laughs> walked off with my laptop or anything. Not that they would. I think it's just like, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I feel like, I, I think I'm one of those people, like, I don't even know if I like having a window. I just want to be in a cave of some sort where, like, yeah. I can't see the world, you know, or it's just like all white walls. I just, uh, I think it's why I live where I live. I like noise. I like people. I like the sounds of the buses. I like people cussing each other out at 3 a.m. I just love that. Uh, and I I was one of those kids where I'd come home from school. I was what they called latchkey or whatever. So I'd come home. I'd turn on the radio, listen to KMET, get my Led Zeppelin going, yeah. turn on the television, maybe Phil Donahue would be on. And I'd do my homework with all that noise going you- on, just kind of I could do all that. And focus on what I needed to do as well. Well, do you have problem? Do you have a problem focusing without that? If you're in dead quiet and yeah, I don't really. I'm kind of hearing the refrigerator hum and stuff, and right. it gets on my nerves. So it's like it's like a, it's like white noise. It just yeah. drowns things out. Yeah. Um, you know who? Uh, it makes me think of uh, Mark Laner, who uh, just put out a new book after like a lot of years not publishing but he wrote a book called like My Cousin, My Gastroenterologist, and they're these like you know very uh, interesting kind of, uh, I don't know if I'm going to describe it properly, like manic, hyper-mediated books. Hmm. And I remember reading an interview with him, and he was talking about how he cannot do creative writing unless he's got, like, the TV on, the radio on. He wants, like, all these things on at the same time, and he's getting snippets and bits of information, and not always, but sometimes is incorporating them into his work. I agree. I mean, I, I write down dialogue constantly when I'm out in public and I'm sitting there doing my own thing. There's always, 
stuff that I'm hearing, I think, oh, I got to write that down. That's pretty amazing. Or some image comes by and it's a really strange image. And I probably wouldn't have seen that had I just been sitting in my house and stuff that I put down and I use at some point because I think it's amazing. So you always have a notebook on you? Always. See, but women have a, I think women have a distinct advantage here because <laughs> they have the bag. Right. I don't, you know, it's like, that's another thing. It's like, I can't, I guess I could have a little notebook in my pocket, but yeah. I, I forget to do that and I don't have a pen and. I, and people make fun of me because I carry a bag. It's like luggage. So it's got space for the laptop, 10 books. I mean, a scarf, a hat. It's crazy. It's is, there, crazy is it on bag. wheels? <laughs> no. No, you're not like wheeling a suitcase. Around. No, I'm probably lopsided, though, from carrying this thing around because um, I do. I just, you know, I leave the house. I live in a very small space. It's something like 900 square feet loft and and so I leave the house and I basically take part of my house with me. It's like with me all day. I might need something. So, But it's, you know, it's, it's cool to live in downtown Los Angeles. For people who uh, don't know Los Angeles, like, you know, there's downtown with tall buildings. And then there's the rest of Los Angeles, which is this huge expanse of neighborhoods. Right. Um, but when you live downtown, it has, you know, a much more urban feel or it feels a little bit more New York-y. I it mean, does. Uh, it's I hard guess. to describe. Yeah. But, I get, you know, it's... It, uh, it seems like when I go down there, I feel like I'm in a different city. Yeah. And I guess it's, you know, I definitely can feel a distinct difference between, uh, you know, say, uh, Hollywood or Silver Lake or Los Feliz and the beach towns. Right. But it's not quite as dramatic. Right. But when I go downtown after being here uh, and I'm among all the tall buildings, sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm in a city. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know? No, because it's, you know, again, in a very small space, lots of people crammed up against each other, lots of different kinds of folks. So you're hearing and seeing just wildly disparate things, and it's dirty, which I love. And Why do you love it? I don't. I grew up in the suburbs, where for the sort of from when I was like ten to seventeen. Where? Where? Like uh, where? West Covina. Okay, so you're from you're from this area. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, uh, and and so yeah, and so I lived in the suburbs, and I just couldn't wait to get back to what I knew the, the um, filth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why, I don't know why I'm wired that way, but it's just what I like. So. No, I like the grid of a city too. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's any place in LA proper that escapes it completely, except for maybe like the Palisades and right. Beverly Hills right, and stuff right. like that. But, um, yeah, when things get too clean and too like manicured, it starts to spook me a little bit. Yeah. It's like, you know, there's only so many burgers you can have at Applebee's before you start. Well, there's an air, yeah, there's crazy. an there's an air <laughs> yeah, there's an air breath. So many awesome blossoms before <laughs> right. your head explodes. <laughs> exactly. But uh, no, it's like it's like an airbrushed feeling, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, I think I'm made uneasy by that because uh, it doesn't seem real. Right. You know, and maybe sometimes living in this city uh, or living in any big city, it can seem too real at times. But right. most of the time, it's a nice realness. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> nice balance. Well, and, but you know, downtown LA too, like there's like uh you know, skid rows down there and you see, I'm sure you see a lot of stuff. I mean, right. I think for people who haven't been exposed to that, I know when I first saw it for the first time, uh, not that I've spent like a ton of time down there, but it, it's unbelievable how many people are down there living homeless. Yeah. And, you know? um, and I'm right off of skid row a few blocks. So it's, I don't know, it's good and bad. You get used to seeing people living in terrible circumstances. Yeah. 
But on the other hand, I want to know that there are people who are struggling. I want to witness kind of how everybody's living. I don't want to live in well, a that vacuum. It sounds so like I, a lot of the world population is struggling. Mm-hmm. I mean, not quite exactly the same with like substance abuse all the time, but I mean, uh, not everybody down on Skid Row is dealing with substance Absolutely abuse. Absolutely not. You right, know? Right. And so, you know, I, I have this cause we have homeless in my neighborhood. And like lately I've had this thing in my head where I'm like, I can't believe how many of these people I walk past and not only, uh, walk past, but it's the same people. Mm-hmm. And I had this, uh, this sort of moment, uh, just about a month or two ago where I was like, I'm not doing that anymore. Like I'm such an asshole. Like <laughs> the same guy I've been seeing on the corner for like three or four years. And I've never even said hello. And finally, like I introduced myself and he was like, yeah, Hey, I'm Anthony. I'm like, Hey, and I was like, can I get you something? He's like, I'd love an apple juice. I was like, done. You know? And I was like, I don't know. You know, I I don't want to pat myself on the back too much. That's not why I'm I'm bringing it up, but just that it's just unbelievable to me how many people in this city or just about any city uh, of a certain size are living without homes. It's no, crazy. I know. And again, it's like, I mean, it's not like, oh, you're such an amazing person for buying this person an apple juice, but that should be normal. That, at least that should that be baseline. You had a conversation with someone that you wouldn't have had a conversation with had you been in your gated community, wherever, you know? Right. Right. You're not insulated from it, but it's just like, you know, it's all relative, uh, you know, people's levels of comfort and wealth or whatever. And yeah. You know, that this guy, uh, and you know, the one that I'm thinking of in particular, um, you know, has, I, I believe has like a smartphone, you know, like, <laughs> so there's, but you know, it doesn't have a home for whatever right. reason and hasn't for a long time. So to some people, you know, he would have it good and, right. um, and he lives in Los Angeles where the weather's nice. So right. like, it's all relative, It's all relative. but it just, it, it kind of freaks me out sometimes when I think of how, uh, detached I can become, even though I'm living in close proximity to it, I feel like I can do a better job. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, do you I ever feel so. that way? I do because I, as I said earlier, you get used to stuff. So, um, like when I first moved downtown before it kind of caught on as a place where lots of people are living, it, uh, there were people just on the sidewalk everywhere and you were just sort of stepping over people to getting to where you were going. And I just thought, this is so weird. Yeah. This person could be dead for all I yeah, know. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. And and so, I mean, on the other hand, you can't say, come on, everybody, live with me in my house. <laughs> right. All you can do is think, okay, this is what's going on in the world. So these are uh, politicians who I think give a shit about this stuff. Or um, these are charities that are paying attention to this stuff. Or... These are the media that are having discussions about this thing so that at least you're present and you're looking and you're paying attention as opposed to saying, I don't want to know. Right. That's very different. Right. Well, and it's just, it's easy. I think when you don't live among it to pretend it's not there, Right. you know, but when you're confronted with it, you don't have much of a choice though. I, you know, I say that having just explained how I basically didn't notice it as well as, as well as I should have. So. I don't know. It's just interesting. Los Angeles in general is interesting. Um, just- it is because it's so different wherever you go. It only took uh, me 20 minutes to get here, but it's so different, you know, driving, say, from where Sunset begins over by Alvera Street on uh, where it's Cesar Chavez. So then you start driving and then it becomes Sunset and then we hit 
here and it's just very different but it's 20 minutes yeah so la is amazing that way yeah it's a it's a it's a beast you know what is it la County's bigger than the state of connecticut so that's crazy there you have it so let's uh let's talk a bit more about uh your childhood growing up in west covina your family like what what do your folks do like are they artistic people you oh come- no 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 um my dad Everybody in my family, um, they were factory workers, and then my dad became a social worker later. He's retired now. So we were just, um, you know, working class folks, and there were no writers or artists or anything in my family that I know of. Like maybe. Anywhere in your lineage? Like No. No. no can, so. can you see, can you sense it in either of your parents, like the traces of it, that maybe they just didn't ever, ever even consider it because they were doing other things or had a family to support or whatever. Do you know what I'm saying? Like- yeah, I I don't... I mean, I, I think their love of just kind of people and music and stuff like that, that perhaps there was that there. And my dad, he always... He took me to stuff when I was a kid, like the ice capades and <laughs> the zoo and like um, theater every now and then. I remember seeing Annie... I saw Annie when I was a kid. Um, and that is like, and you know, tons of ball games. That was the thing that we used to do. What, the like Dodgers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Go to Dodgers a lot. And so I think to me that's indicative of someone who's kind of interested in the arts in some way and wanting to expose his kid to those kinds of things. So. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not a hugely nostalgic person, but when I think back to going to see baseball games as a kid, there's something great about that. I love, yeah. And I don't even watch baseball on TV, but I will go to a baseball game at a stadium, especially a night game for whatever reason, and just like walking through the tunnel out to your seats and like seeing the field. No, it's great. I love that. Do you that. hit Dodger Stadium much? or are you Not mu- not as much as I oh, wish I did, on. but I go. I do go. Okay. I go to a couple games a season. Okay. You know, and uh, I always have a good, and I always say whenever I go, like, I should do this more. I love it. I mean, I don't go, I live again, 10 minutes. I, I take long walks and I walk past the stadium every day. Um, and so I don't get there as much as I could living right in the neighborhood there. But, um, when I was a kid, we drive from West Covina and we'd hit the stadium and we'd go. And so that was my experience. Um, was just growing up a Dodger fan and being at that stadium. Every so often I've been to Angel Stadium, but they're not really my teams. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been to a game there. Yeah. It feels like the, Disneyland. No, it's, yeah, it's got that weird waterfall. Yeah, like the, the fake stone. <laughs> I, don't like, Get a, I don't like that no, either. I, no. don't, I want a grittier stadium. Exactly. Um, so West Covina and then your mother and your father was a social worker. And then uh, what was your mom doing? Um, she did lots of things. She worked, uh, for Rainbird sprinklers. She worked in the factory there. Um, years ago she cleaned hotel rooms with my brother. So she did just like lots of manual labor, factory work, stuff like that. And did they, did they, did your parents encourage your artistic pursuits? Did you feel that as a kid? Were they like nudging you like going, yeah, you can do this go. Or was it something that you sort of held, on your own. It was something I held on my own. They were kind of like, you're a smart kid, so real estate's in your future. <laughs> right. It was like, you know, the arts is just weird. You know, we don't, we didn't know anybody who did that kind of stuff. And it just seemed weird and kind of where was the money in that? And um, I was the first um, woman in my family to go to college. And so 
in their minds, there's progress and progress is had through doing something practical, not kind of dreaming away the day, thinking of poems and stuff like that. Sitting on your porch for 45 minutes (laughs) in the morning. Slack jawed. No, exactly. So, um, I got a print journalism degree from, from USC, which is where I'm a professor now. And that was seen as practical back then, but it's so ironic since the newspaper business is sort of crapped out at this point. Yeah, it's crazy, huh? Yeah, but like that I was think practical. About, that I, was what we we were. I was supposed to do. So well, but I think yeah, I think about journalism now, and it's like, you know, to, to, if you want to do like really uh, substantive investigative journalism, for example, you know, something that's long form, something that requires time. Um, often something that requires travel and expenses and all that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, increasingly fewer and far further between, you know, to find some place where you can actually get paid to do that. No, I know. And it seemed at the time a really great thing. I mean, I was always curious about the world and I thought, oh, this is what journalists do. You know, I was like, I, at some point I double majored in Spanish. So I was going to learn Spanish, be a journalist and like, end up in El Salvador covering something. Yes, that's what I want. I want to like cover a war. Do, yeah. I know that sounds awful. I know. You know and then like, I, you know, I should say, cause I often have that dream still that I'm going to go abroad somehow and do some sort of investigative or like first person nonfiction book, uh, you know, that kind of throws me into the middle of history or something, but to cover a war is super heavy. And the people who do that sort of journalism are often really damaged by it. Right. You know what I'm saying? No, so to like, stuff, to make, yeah. to, like, it's easy to like uh, romanticize it and to think of yourself as like the protagonist in a movie. But, right. you know, I think that the reality of that sort of uh, work is really grim. No, you know. it's, yeah, it's very, and as we know from all the journalists who've been killed from covering our most recent wars. There was just a, a, an article about uh, a woman and I, Forgive me, I'm forgetting her name, but she had the eye patch and she was killed in Syria. And I think it was Vanity Fair that wrote a big expose on her that was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. But she had covered wars all over the world and, uh, you know, had had, had a, a bunch of near misses, mm-hmm. you know, before mm-hmm. she finally met her end. And it was just mm-hmm. like, you know, it kind of, you know, brought to light just what we're talking sure. about. It's difficult work. Difficult. <laughs> and yet I thought that was something I, I might want to do but i think again connecting to the fiction there's like um these imagined stories and imagined lives that i was interested in that i eventually got to through the fiction but kind of journalism was going to be the consolation for kind of not being able to do the creative writing and the fiction so you knew even in uh you know, your undergraduate days that you really wanted to write fiction. I knew that. Yeah. Okay. And I so really wanted who, to who fiction. brought you to, uh, like what were the writers that you got turned on by? Like who brought you into wanting to be a writer and who did you look to when you were young that really kind of set your mind on fire? Well, this is like, I hate it's cliche, but it's gotta be JD Solinger and it's gotta be, um, Bukowski um, there was a writer, Gail Jones, who I loved. Baldwin was amazing. And not his fiction necessarily, but That'd The Fire Next Time, that just really electrified me when I read that. I couldn't believe it. Um, and so those were writers that felt to me like they were talking about some immediate stuff that was kind of maybe some sort of nascent, nascent uh, notions in my head, but I couldn't quite get to it because I was young and didn't 
think <laughs> properly or something. And so these writers were really interesting to me because they felt just kind of like plain folks or something, like people who were real people who came up with, you know, working or doing whatever, and they were able to get down the stuff on the page. I was going to say they made it seem possible, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, though I should say Salinger feels a little bit removed from that definition, kind of. He does, although when you read, uh, if I was like 13 or something when I read Catcher in the Rye, and my idea of a writer was like, you know, Tolstoy, right? So it's like, well, I'm not that, so I'm never going to be able to write. And so you got this voice that seemed practically transcript where Holden was just kind of talking crazy and saying whatever. It was a very kind of uh, regular person's language that was seemed very accessible to me as a young person. And I thought, well, these are the kind of people who get voice and that their voices could be represented on the page in that way. That's something that I might could get to as opposed to these other writers. Maybe they were European or something. They just seemed like a million miles away from this kind of little black girl in West Covina who was just trying to figure out how to be a writer. Because I thought, well, nobody wants to read about this, like the suburbs or something. But then Holden's just kind of, he's in prep school, which is completely different but he's also just talking about wearing his brother's baseball mitt or whatever. Right. So it's like, right. oh, that's I can do that. Well, and it's just a, it's a, it's such a beautifully uh, realized voice, you mm -hmm. know. And like it took, I want to say I read somewhere about that book um, right after Salinger died that it took him like nine or ten years to write it, and that he obsessively revised it and revised it. And that sort of makes sense to me. Like it makes sense to me because this is an argument I have often about people who don't seem to know much about writing is what they say is that first person's very easy to do, that you're just kind of journaling or something. But it takes a lot to get down very particular voices um, with that kind of specificity and with that kind of ear. Um, you're working, if you're doing it right, to get that down on the page properly. Um, so I could totally see that. I think that's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he's big for a lot of people. He's definitely big for me. And like when you read, if you read that book, I think books are so often a matter of timing in terms mm -hmm. of when you come to them in your right. life and how hard they hit you. But if you pick up that book at a certain point, you're out of lessons. You know, I challenge. And I don't know how much I, you know, I think it still holds up. I know it's still selling. I think um, it holds up. Although this, I, I teach nine stories often. So I think that's my go-to book more so than Catcher in the Rye these days, but I just know kind of what it meant to me as a person kind of stumbling around in the dark, thinking that writing was not my world, that, that I didn't have access to that. Yeah. I mean, no, yeah. And, and do you ever find because you're teaching nine stories and, uh, as opposed to catcher that you're teaching the short stories because you think there's a better chance. Is this undergrad that you're teaching? Um, undergrad and grad. Oh, okay. I have in the past, but mostly undergrad. I was just going to say, like, with your undergrad students, um, not all of whom I would I would suspect are completely gung-ho to be writers, you know, some of whom are taking it as, like, a part of core curriculum right. or something. Right. Do you ever assign the short stories thinking, like, maybe, you know, I'll have a better chance of actually getting them to read one of these stories than to get through the whole novel? Like, do you ever go, go for something shorter with their attention span in mind or is it just because you prefer it? I no, I don't. I I want them to read 
all the hard stuff as well, not just something that's short and maybe easy. So I just feel like it's a great collection. Yeah. And they maybe have read Catcher in the Rye, maybe, although I don't think that book's assigned much these days. But but Nine Stories is cool in that you can see um, Solinger's range, where you think, okay, the, there there's a lot going on with this writer. It's not just like this Holden was kind of this fluke, and it's a cute little book, and done and done. But when you read Nine Stories, you see kind of, all the level of craft that's happening with every story and thematically what he keeps returning to. And it's just very interesting to see, to show young writers sort of what's possible with one writer right. in that collection. So right. that's why I like to teach it. Um, and then what about like when you, you go from West Covina to USC, like how did you land at USC? I just applied. They have a top-notch journalism program. They did back in 1985, and they they do now, too. And once I decided that um, I I couldn't be a fiction writer, but that I wanted to be a journalist, that I just set my sights on that school and got accepted and got my BA in print journalism. And so then... uh what about the time period in between undergrad and graduate school? Like, you, did you get out and do some work in journalism? No, I. After all that, I really didn't have the heart or the stomach for journalism. It's tough, you know. Lots of rejections and like running to places and trying to get this. I just, I just am too much of a wimp for that lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and so, what I did do is I ended up being a copy editor, and I was a copy editor for a legal journal called Los Angeles Lawyer Magazine. So that's what I did. I was a copy editor for seven years or so. And then I decided that... Is that a good education? I mean, like, you you, you must be pretty good at, you know? Like, I mean, I I found that when I taught, like, uh, Comp 101, I sort of had to, like, pick up the grammar book to learn how to (laughs) teach it. It was great for me in a way because it's all that stuff you sort of know intuitively, but to be able to teach it and to be able to stand in front of a group of students and, like, be like, this is what a compound complex sentence is or something like relearning all those fundamentals is good. So I, did that force your hand when you're working as a copy editor to be really on top of all that stuff? No, I mean, there's a style. We went, did the Chicago style manual, if I remember correctly. And so that's a very specific way of sort of treating the language. And so right. I don't think it was that helpful necessarily. I was hoping I was trying to find, <laughs> I was trying to find the silver lining for you. No. <laughs> You're like, no, it was just drudge no, work yeah. and it was painful. No, no, but it, it was, it was not writing fiction. Let's just say that. Yeah. You know, so. But were, and you were writing on the side. I was, I, in fact, I started taking extension classes at UCLA mm-hmm. and that's where I just needed to keep at it. And so I would take these extension classes. It took, um, My first class was with a great writer named Lou Matthews, Um, and he was one of the first people who said, you know, you kind of know what you're doing. Are you, what are you doing with this? And he said, I don't know. He said, do you want to go to school? And I said, basically, you could go to school for this. Like, I just really had no idea about MFA programs or graduate school. Um, I just didn't know again, cause I'm not in that world. That's just not people that I knew and know don't do that sort of thing. So once I realized there was a way to get at writing fiction, 
um, to learn how to be a better writer, not just be sitting in your room writing or taking the occasional class here and there. I set my sights on grad school. So that's. And, and you wound up in Indiana. I did. That's a great program there. Uh, okay. So, but like, you know, I spent my <laughs> adolescence in Indiana. It's a long way from Los Angeles. It was dramatic. I was startled, let's say, yeah. <laughs> when I first Because Bloomington there. is country. Like, you know, yes, like in yeah. Indiana is, I always say this, but it's like, you know, despite its northerly geography relative to the states, uh, southern Indiana in particular feels like the south. Or at least it, it has a, a strong strain of that, you know. And and there are some accents actually that sound southern. Yeah. There. Yeah. Too, I, mean, there's, so I, I always said there's a lot of. I mean, uh, with affection, I always said there's a lot of rednecks in Indiana. Right. <laughs> and I guess maybe there are too in like downstate Illinois and Ohio. But it, you know, I also spent part of my childhood in Wisconsin, which is not that far away, but feels so far away mm-hmm. culturally. Mm-hmm. You know, like Indiana's. Um, yeah, I'd only school. lived, I'd been, you know, born and raised in LA, never lived anywhere else in my life until I went to grad school there. And, you know, we were just talking earlier about how much I love noise and the city. And, <laughs> and then I got there and I was like, whoa, this is quite an adjustment. And, but I do, um, believe that it was the best thing for me as a writer to leave LA and move to the Midwest and stay there for as long as I did. How long were you there? I was there for about seven years as well. Oh, wow. This is is what happened. It was a three-year MFA, which I finished. And then I got kind of seduced by academia in that I was going to get a PhD in African-American studies. But then my book won the Flannery. And so um, I had to think, well, do I really want to continue with a PhD or do I want to do what I came here to do, which is be a writer? Um, And so... I dropped the PhD, but then was hired as faculty. So that was my first job at IU because I had my book and I was able to get on there. So that's how I ended up being there for so many years. Um, But uh, it just taught me that LA is not the center of the universe. That was good to know because when you live a place your whole life, you don't really think about how it is to live elsewhere and so that was really good for me and the life was much easier. You know, I remember paying, I think my rent was 400 bucks a month. Yeah. Cost of living. It was, I became a hiker there, you know, I got all like into nature as not as, as much as I get into nature, which isn't very much, but for me it was a big deal. Sure. Yeah. Um, so some, it was good like to riding be there. some bikes for you. Like what was it? The, the, the little 500? Yeah, no, I didn't get that crazy. You weren't going okay. <laughs> no, cliff jumping. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> none of the quarry yeah. stuff. None of that. Yeah. But it was good. Um, but I was ready to come home. I, I grown homesick by that last couple of years there. The last couple of gray winters. Yeah. The winters were tough. That was, uh, I had a real crappy car as a 78 Volvo wagon and Those things are tanks, though. Oh, it lasts. It was a great car to have, yeah. but it was I, like rusted out, and like the the winters were hard on it, and it was tough. Yeah. Being, you know how many windows Volvos have? You know, like a million windows right. on those wagons, which is what I had, and it, and you know you'd have to scrape, and like, oh, it was awful. Just scraping in general sucks. <laughs> I don't care how many. It could be two windows. It's too and many. my first winter, I went completely through a stop sign because I had no idea how to drive in the snow. I thought I could just drive as I've always <laughs> driven. Right. 
And I was just chugging along and hit a stop sign and hit the brakes and just kept on going. And that was like, okay, this is... You didn't get hit, though. I didn't get hit, but it scared the daylights out of me. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> no. I remember, like, I was in the mountains in Colorado because that's how I lived there for eight years when I was, like, after I went to college. And uh, I remember coming down, uh, you know, a road in the mountains and spinning out. Like one of the most unpleasant feelings, not only, not only spinning out in the, in, you know, on the ice and snow, but spinning out while going downhill in the mountains. No, that's horrifying. <laughs> it was not fun. It's just strange. Cause you know, brakes usually work. So you're like, what do you mean? We're not stopping. <laughs> What's going on here? How is this not, you know? So, you know, during your stretch, I mean, it sounds like, you know, the graduate program was a great thing for you. It sounds like getting away from LA, mm-hmm. um, and, and just getting some perspective on it probably. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but by being away from a place, a lot of times you can see it more clearly. Yeah. But in addition to all that, it also, um, you know, you clearly got writing done. Yes. So was this the first time that you'd ever really worked in a disciplined, like quote unquote professional way? Like, was this the first opportunity you'd had, or was it something that you had started during your copy, uh, copy editing days at the, uh, magazine here in LA? This, um, being in, um, grad school in Indiana was, very much an immersion in fiction in ways that living in LA with my copy editing job wasn't because, um, we taught fiction every, you know, we taught it, we wrote it, we were in grad school, I mean, workshop rather. So it was every day, all day, this idea of writing and studying writing and becoming a better read writer because I don't think I was all that well read before grad school. I was just kind of grabbing things as I could. Well, and just having the time like that, like, you know, cause the, the debate over grad school, you know, can get a little tedious and silly because you have some people who think it's not necessary or that the programs churn out, um, you know, a certain conformity of writing because mm-hmm. everyone's reinforcing the same authors and the same styles and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just on a practical functional level, like, where else are you going to be able to hide out and do the work? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, unless you're living in a, a city where rent is, uh, you know, based on the exchange rate, $20 a month, right. you know, what are you going to do? You know, you either have money coming from somewhere or you're able to get up at 4 a.m. and do the, you know, four hours of work before you go to your full-time job. But, you know, I, I've tried to do that and it, it'll, it'll burn you out, you know, yeah. quickly. It's hard to do. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't have the patience for haters of MFA programs simply because just on a real practical level, um, we're not living in a world anymore where people just jet off to Paris and live off of somebody's money or something. I just don't know how that's done. I needed a fellowship. I needed to learn how to write better. I needed to read. I needed to learn pedagogy. Um, I just feel as though, yes, I mean, uh, on a, in a practical sense, most people can't afford to just kind of sit around writing. Um, and not only just the money aspect of it again, but just what I learned in graduate school in terms of people I read and the aesthetic that um, became my aesthetic. Um, I don't think I would have had that had I not studied writing seriously. So, and, and well, yeah. And then in terms of like your day-to-day uh, ritual, like, you know, we talked earlier about how now you'll, you'll you know, you'll schedule your day essentially and mm-hmm. you'll see how many hours you can squeeze in regardless of whether it's morning, noon mm-hmm. or night. When you were at school, were you, uh, 
you know, setting a, a discipline schedule in a similar way or was it, was it, you know, obviously you, you were getting writing done, but how did, how did you, um, get yourself into like that kind of rhythm? Well, uh, I wrote every day more or less in grad school cause I had this sense of, I'd gotten there late, you know, um, I was one of the older grad students. It was like maybe 28, 29 or something coming up on 30. And I had this desperate feeling like this will never come again. And so it's a good feeling to have. <laughs> yes. You know? And so it was, you know, I, I had uh, classes to plan and papers to grade and exams to make up and all of that. But I, so also you were teaching had, as part of the fellowship. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I had that. But I also had three years in which to finish this manuscript. So um, the clock was ticking. So I did have the, the, the discipline. I had a similar. I had this similar feeling. Yeah. Like, this is it. This is my you know no, lucky time. No, it's <laughs> it. I'm really fortunate to be able to do this, and and it worked out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about um, visions like for the future? Like, are you somebody who? thinks long-term about how you want your career to go in some sort of macro sense, or are you more of like what's happening today? What's happening today. Yeah. We don't really have control over the other stuff. Do we? Mm. I mean, I really don't. All I can do is think to write as well as I possibly can. And sometimes people appreciate that. And sometimes they won't. And we've talked earlier about how hard it is to somehow get word out, um, writers to get word out about their books and things, but I don't really, there's only so much you can do. So I could have all these projections and grand ideas, but all I can think of is, okay, my next book is going to do this, this, and this, and it's going to be sharp and it's going to be tight and I'm going to do this and that I can do. Right. The rest is like, meh, what are you going to do? Okay. So do you ever think, I mean, do you ever entertain, uh, fantasies of, you know, uh, the kind of career where you win major prizes, like a Pulitzer Prize. I, mean, I think every writer of literary of course, people yeah. all do that. Do you think, I mean, do you ever spend time thinking about that? I mean, that's, do you ever, do you ever think of the kind of career that you would want to have and hold, do you hold some author up as like a benchmark? Um, one of my favorite writers is a writer named Edward P. Jones, and he won the Pulitzer for The Known World, and he's amazing. And what I love about him, in spite of having won the Pulitzer and being one of the most uh, brilliant American authors we've had, is that he seems to not pay attention to any of that stuff. Um, well, he also, so, but he also, you know, it took him a while, right? I don't know right. a ton about a ton about him, but I do remember reading about him, and it was like he worked, kind of like a uh, office job forever, and was writing Absolutely. stories, and he didn't. You didn't. But have... again, that was like that's just work. That's yeah. working on the stories rather than. I I don't know him, but I can't imagine he was thinking this is going to win the Pulitzer. Right. It's right. more like I got to get this novel down. I got to get these stories down. So I don't. I don't know. Of course, it would be amazing to get that kind of recognition simply because then I feel like more people would be reading what it is that I'm trying to discuss, what I'm trying to say on the page. It'd be great to have people, uh, more people reading those words and kind of perhaps taking away something that they 
wouldn't have had they not read my novel or short stories or what have you. It is sort of amazing when you think about it that, you know, if you win one of these major awards, it's so much better, I would imagine. I, you know, I shouldn't say this with too much authority because I don't know the numbers, but I have to assume that if you win the National Book uh, Award, you probably wind up selling more copies than uh, yeah. if you get nominated for it. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, like, I mean, all the books are deserving, and there are a lot more that are deserving of recognition, but, like, getting one of those awards, ultimately, the, the, big, the big victory in it is readers. Right. That's know. it. And, of course, not money because money is not, like, none of us... You know, who goes into writing thinking this is really going to be lucrative. But you know what? But you know what? I think, and I've talked to so many writers uh, just by virtue of the website and the show and stuff, and the, the feeling that I get is that most everybody's a realist when it comes down to it, but that everybody works with this sort of, you know, crazy hope or belief that it could happen, mm-hmm. you know, which might just be like an American thing maybe, but right. you know, even though you're working on this like really like strange collection of link short stories, you know, right. like, like somehow this is going to be the one, you know, that yeah. winds up taking off and selling millions of copies and, you know, it does happen and you see it happen. Sure. And, you know, when I thought a lot about this, like you see a book take off and I think when you look at the kind of the pool of writers out there and their response to it, um, there's obviously some people who are going to be envious and are going to let that get to them. Uh, there are going to be a lot more people, I think, uh, that look at it, uh, you know, in, in kind of a drawing inspiration from mm-hmm. it kind of way. And it's almost like it's like the orphan who gets adopted or something. When, right. you, when you see this author get sucked off into the world, <laughs> it's like, you know, they did it. It happened for them. Yeah. Like maybe it could happen for me. Yeah, no, it's a nice, again, it's a nice thought, but it's not something that drives me yeah. at all, you know? It can't, be, it can't be the principal fuel. No, I just feel like I, uh, if I'm writing something, it feels so urgent to me and so necessary, and I hope to God that people read it. Um, and again, the award would be the thing that would get people to read, more people to read. Mm. But at the end of the day, again, you're not craft, I would hope, at least I'm not writing stories with the idea of getting a larger audience based on material or something. I don't, well, and it's kind of write what you write. Well, and like you said earlier, uh, just moments ago about uh, urgency, Mm -hmm. I have this thought because I feel the same way, like because of all the work that goes into writing a book and uh, how painful it can be and mm-hmm. how lonely it is. I mean, it's a difficult process and it also has its upsides, but it's, it's challenging. And if you don't have something that you urgently need to say, like, how do you get yourself to do it? And I say that because I think to myself, my God, you know, if you're, if you're thinking of it from a, the standpoint of breadwinning and you've got to get a book every, you know, a book out every two or three years just to maintain your readership and keep money coming in, you know, like I can see a career developing that way. And I think it happens for a lot of writers and, Mm -hmm. you know, just personally with my own particular perspective on it, it's hard for me to do it unless I have something I really need to say. Right. So I better come up with some things that I really need to say, (laughs) you know, I guess that's the challenge, you know, Yeah. it's hard. You got to like, I guess, like, where do you think that kind of urgency comes from? Can it be grown and cultivated or is it just something that, like, some people have a 10-year cycle and some people have a 15-year cycle? Like, look at Marilyn Robinson, who, 
you know, wrote this book, won the National Book Award, and then went away for 25 years. Right, right. You know, like, and then came back and, and I think did it again or won the Pulitzer or something. Right. Like, she just had some more time in between. Yeah. Or, uh, or you know, the the famous, um, you know, Harper Lee. You know, she wrote. Exactly. She said what she wanted to say and she was done. Right. And it worked out for her. Yeah. I mean, I would hope that I would have many more books in me, but what do we know? I mean, I'm going to be writing no matter what. So, um, but yeah, I hope it's not another 20 years between now yeah, you and, and the both. next one. Is it, is it fiction only, or do you see yourself writing any nonfiction and putting that journalism degree to use in some way? Like, could you ever see yourself doing a biography or some sort of nonfiction narrative? Um, I never say never, but it doesn't appeal to me now in the most I've done with that is to write book reviews, um, a couple of book reviews, but no, I, I really, I really want to write fiction. That's my love. And so, um, and, and book reviews are interesting to do as well. Although I've not done one in a good long while. Um, so yeah, I don't think so. Okay. But again, like next year, you might be like, oh, I just saw that she's writing this <laughs> you know, biography. Yeah. She said never. You know. <laughs> so what about all the challenges that come along with writing, whether it's rejection or the difficulty of, you know, getting that next book, finding the idea um, and really kind of, you know, getting your hooks into it? Like, how do you deal with all the struggles like do you have any like coping strategies <laughs> i mean it sounds like you've had a, i mean the, the the collection that you wrote during your mfa years won the flannery o'connor and went into print so that's pretty pretty ideal yeah but you've obviously i'm sure dealt with rejection too oh yeah so how do you how did you work your way through all that and, and how did you especially work your way um you know emotionally through the lean years in between undergrad and getting to bloomington um I, well, I don't, the thing about rejection is I don't think it ever, I never gets easy. It's always a bummer. I mean, when I was sending the novel out and I was getting the rejections, um, it took a while, you know, you'd be, I'd be bummed out for a couple of days or a week and then just be, okay, well, there's a next round coming. So like maybe there'll be some good hope springs eternal. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, and still in all, none of it was enough to make me stop doing what I was doing. I was, I was writing short stories while I was sending out the novel. I, st- I needed to do something. Um, that's not a bad way to go about it either. No, like one, I think one of the worst things you can do is just stop working and just sit there and twiddle your thumbs. No, I can't do that. I mean, it's, yeah, you get restless. You just have to do something. And even if these are stories that aren't going to see the light of day, at least I spent a couple hours. Even if they're all stories about a young author waiting for work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're all stories about a young author pacing her apartment. Exactly. With a box of tissues. Right. Weeping. <laughs> um, but no, like, and then, uh, you know, you teach, uh, you know, now, and I'm sure you're dealing with a lot of young aspiring writers. Um, you know, like what, uh, how do you feel teaching, 
uh, feeds you as a writer? Like, do you get a lot from your students? Like the, I mean, I, I've taught for five years and mm-hmm. I found that like, I got a lot from them, probably maybe uh, more than they got from me sometimes, you know, it's, it's twofold. I mean, on, on some level, it's really hard because, you know, you're really present you have to be there. You can't just kind of sleepwalk through the classroom. So that part's tough, but then I agree with you. I, Throughout the years, I've had some amazing students, and they're often so smart, and they're so interested, and... Optimistic. Yeah, optimistic, (laughs) and you give them a story that maybe you've been taking for granted for years, like, yeah, it's a good story, and then they come to you with, oh my God, I can't believe that person wrote like that, that was an amazing story, And, and so they're fired up, and it's just really really great to see that and to see i often see writers who they have kind of a natural raw talent but they're just kind of like making rookie mistakes or something and then you just tell them oh you know maybe three exclamation points at the end of your sentence isn't like the way to go (laughs) or the exclamation point question mark (laughs) combo right right (laughs) and then just like getting rid of that kind of stuff and seeing them become really good and I'm serious. I mean, I don't know. I don't think the world um, that we could never have too many writers, you know, like maybe they never write seriously or whatever, but just the idea that they understand what goes into the craft and that they're reading stuff that informs their lives in ways that it that the lives haven't been informed before and that that somehow shapes them into these really interesting people. I just love that. Well, yeah. And then, and, and, and you have that element of it, uh, you know, like all the, all the gold that you get from, uh, having the opportunity to teach and then working with these students. But, uh, I guess maybe a bit more selfishly when you have to teach something, whether it's a collection of Salinger stories or you have to, uh, teach a novel and you have to go in and deconstruct it yourself right. first. Like that can be really uh, informative for you as well in your work. I would take, you know, I would imagine, right? Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that. It forces your hand. It's like, a, it's, yeah. a, it's like a built-in benefit. Right. You know? And it's great. I mean, there have been many instances in the classroom where I've been reading a story this one way, or I taught um, Mary Gates Gill's Veronica last semester, which I love that book. But every so often or often, Students point out something. I'm like, whoa, I did not see that. I read this book like 10 times. And they saw it, and it's great. Um, and so I'm learning some stuff by because they have their fresh eyes, and they're all over it. Um, just learning that and also trying to figure out, okay, I'm teaching character today, but how can I get them to really kind of deconstruct character and kind of see how it's working without just sort of droning on and on and boring them to death. There's got to be a way that I can open this up and get at it and present it in a way that's compelling. And that's too, that keeps you kind of sharp and on your toes, having to figure this stuff out on a day to day and make it and and be able to present it in a way that's not going to put people to sleep. Right. Which is a challenge. It is a challenge when you have, you know, how how many students are you teaching at a time? Like Um, 25? Well, usually in the workshops are small. There's something like 14 or something per class. So, yeah. Um, it's it's good. 
That's good. Well, I uh, I congratulate you. Congrats on this the debut novel. Thank you. Best of luck on future works. Uh, do you have something in the works right now? I do, but it's like I feel very jinxy about it if I talk about it. How far along are you? Can you at least tell me that? Oh, maybe like 50 pages. Okay, so it's beginning stages. Yeah. It could change radically. It could change, as my novel did. Um, so. And do you feel... Do you feel uh, I mean, the novel took you about nine years to write, you said? Mm, nine, ten, you from think, beginning to end. Do you have, like, your sights set on being like, I'm going to crank this next one out faster? I kind of want to get this one out faster. <laughs> With this one, Elsewhere, California, uh, it's my first novel, so I did not know what I was doing. I don't think I'll know, like, magically understand how to crank out a novel from here on out. But I feel like, psychically, it's less of a mind trip like uh, i can't do it i can't do it I, I don't know what i'm doing this is scary now you're like feel I like i did it come on get over it you can do it again right you already did it right it might be hard it might t- however long it takes but at least i haven't psyched myself out which i almost did with that first novel because it was scary well uh congratulations thank and you. thank you so much Thanks, for taking Brad. the time this is great thank you All right, you guys, there you go. That is Dana Johnson. Go get her novel. It is called Elsewhere, California. It is available now from CounterPoint. You can find her on the web at DanaJohnsonAuthor.com, and she is also a member of the Facebook. This show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my tweets on the side, the show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, the address is letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out Kill rockstars.com and uh for the record i am in israel at the moment at this very moment that this show goes live for those of you who have been following along and listening to recent episodes i will be talking about that i'm sure in the future Uh, but right now i am moving around at large this was recorded obviously ahead of time and uh, i want you to know that i am out there collecting data on the periphery data or data You be the judge. Please remember that Charles Dickens used to take long walks during fits of mania, sometimes as long as 25 miles, and that Isaac Newton died of complications from a kidney stone. I will be back again soon with another episode, ladies and gentlemen, another conversation with another author. Thank you for listening. You you are my hero. Do you know that? Did you ever know that you're my hero?